Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week in Oz, everyone wanted to get their hands on the ruby slippers. And in Grand Rapids, someone did. We'll talk about the C-13 Originals podcast, No Place Like Home. Then, was Christopher Dunch a bad surgeon or was he intentionally hurting his patients? We'll review Peacock TV's dramatic adaptation of Dr. Death. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, and resident cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, and my new beach best friend, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. What's up, Rebecca? So, Kevin, you've, yes. you've now seen in person. I am friends with Toby now, right? You know, I got to say, every time you say that, <laughs> it leaves the impression that for the past five years, you did not like each other. Oh, no, no. We've yeah. always liked each other. No, I'm... See? But don't you see that it leaves that impression? 100%, yes. Yes. Yes, but yes, you're yes gonna continue exactly. To yes. Do it. All yes, right. yes okay. exactly, yes. Understood. <laughs> but, Toby, you have to agree, every time we've seen each other in the past, there's always been like a reason, like a work reason, or we were at some conference or some gathering. There was never just like, we're just going to hang and chat reason, right? It's the first time I think we've just like hung out with nobody else around and just talked about just like random stuff. That had Wait, when to did do this happen? Work. At Plum Island. Toby came to our house to hang out with us for an afternoon. What? Yeah. Well, Laura, you were invited, but you decided to I be know. with your family, In which Cape was lame. Yeah. Lame. <laughs> we had way more dolphins than you did at our vacation spot. So I got to say. I didn't see any dolphins. <laughs> I didn't see any dolphins either. I think. <laughs> wow. I think it was a sturgeon that you. Uh, I saw both. I saw sturgeon and dolphins. I know the difference between a giant fish and a dolphin. They look completely different. They look completely different. Well, if anybody else on shore saw a dolphin, they could back you up. Okay, people did. All right, and we're going to move no, on. This, nope. is a, this is a large topic of conversation. <laughs> Huge debate. We'll pick yeah. it up later. All right, should we just start our podcast right now? I don't know. I want to argue about dolphins. <laughs> Leading off. I really believe that whoever stole them was really seeking that power. And they needed it so badly, they would steal something to get it. Yes. They're considered one of the most valuable pieces of memorabilia in cinema, Dorothy's Ruby Slippers. In 2005, at a traveling display at the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, a culprit made it past very light security and vanished with the shoes. The robbers smashed the top of that plexiglass, which was just glued together and screwed 
on the base and they hurried up out of here, the police estimated, in less than a minute. The case went cold and finger-pointing occurred among the principal players. Then a publicity stunt led to an anonymous go-between offering to return the stolen slippers for a hefty reward. We just saw someone wearing them. The ruby slippers were at a yard sale and I, I saw them. I just bought them for 10 bucks. Oh, well, it's got to be the mob. It's got to be an inside job. They stuffed them in a paint can and threw them in a lake. The C-13 Originals podcast, No Place Like Home, recalls the ruby slipper heist and manhunt, as well as detours into Hollywood history, Judy Garland's troubled life, and her disdainful hometown. The hosts also seek to identify the FBI's undisclosed main suspect. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from No Place Like Home, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Kevin, here's my question for you. Yes. I found myself thinking over and over again, like, is this crime consequential? I mean, the podcast tries to tell us again and again and again how important these shoes are. Mm -hmm. But do you feel personally as if they actually are that important? I'm just asking you personally. Yeah, I don't think it's an inconsequential story nor Mm -hmm. an inconsequential crime. Mm -hmm. They're very valuable. And the story is really interesting because, yeah, I mean, it's a big time piece of Hollywood memorabilia. And they make a good case explaining why that is and really tell an interesting story about how things like the ruby slippers and Humphrey Bogart's trench coat and other stuff like that were saved from the trash heap and instead became very valuable collector's items. Hmm. But that's not the issue I have with the story. Well, we'll talk about that. But Toby, doesn't it seem like there are a lot of people in the world, and we hear them in the podcast, who just assign like a tremendous amount of value, almost like supernatural value, to this piece of memorabilia? Uh, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like those relics that they have in some like Catholic shrines or something where people show up and they want to get healed of whatever they have by being in their presence. And it seems like maybe people don't literally think they're going to get healed, but there is this sort of symbolism that has to do with their interpretation of, of Oz and, and the Wizard of Oz movie and, and inclusion and and things like that. But Toby, uh, you're wrong. There was that girl that came from Australia <laughs> who was blind <laughs> and thought if she touched the, the ruby slippers, she would be healed. Was she? They didn't mention that in the they podcast. But I feel like they probably would have if she I'm had guessing that that did not happen. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, okay. okay. Well, except for that little girl in Australia, I think most of the people, <laughs> I think it's symbolic of something that, of a, like a better world, hmm. you know? Anyway, I, I did not realize that. I also found myself thinking that like, their arbitrary value of things. I mean, like, apparently in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, these movie studios would just throw away their extra crap. Like, the idea of memorabilia wasn't even a thing around movies until these guys started poking around, like, in the warehouses. And it just sort of, like, gave me the question. I I was thinking about this, too, with the Pappy Van Winkle episode of that heist show we watched. Mm -hmm. Value is arbitrary in a lot of ways, right? Yes. And... I don't know. I think that just assigns importance to it that only like matters to like a certain number of people, but not everybody. It's not like um, a gold bar, you know, which actually has like a a literal value because it's a, it's a market around. It. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, so Lara, uh, one of the things that the 
podcast brought up over and over again that Kevin and I were reminiscing about was that The Wizard of Oz, and I'm asking you this in particular because you don't have a TV growing up, (laughs) the way that we watched it, there were two things, The Wizard of Oz and The Sound of Music, and the way that we watched them, oh, and the uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas special, was that once a year it would be on TV, and it was like a big thing. The Wizard of Oz is going to be on like this Saturday at 8, and you you could only see it once a year. Like Like Ten Commandments. Yeah, like pre-streaming, pre-VCR. Did you ever see (laughs) The Wizard of Oz growing up? I did. Actually, this is one of the few like kind of classic rite of passage movies that I did see growing up. And and I do remember that once a year that it was on. And I was trying to explain that to my son recently. I was like, well, like this is a big deal when this is on TV. Because I remember each year I would be progressively less scared by the creepy flying monkeys. But I remember like when I first watched it, I don't know, when I was like eight or something, I was terrified by The Wizard of Oz. Like, I couldn't even, like, watch that whole section in The Wicked Witch's Castle. So, you know, I think for me that, you know, going into this podcast, it's sort of nostalgia of, I think, so many people being in that. I mean, even me, with no electricity, can relate to this because (laughs) that was the show we flipped on the generator and flipped on the TV to watch. Flipped on the generator. Flipped Flipped on on the the rabbit ears, the whole deal. Yeah, no, to have the power. Yeah. So we could watch it. Yeah, but, you know, I think a lot of people remember this movie, and like Toby was saying, like applying this sort of, you know, value to these shoes. But I think the age that you watched it sort of sits in your your mind as like the possibilities that were out there. So when you're little and you're watching this um, movie, I mean, the ruby slippers did seem magical, you yeah. know? So I think that sticks with you even as you get older and you know, like, logically that's not true. But I think... So many of us that watched that show when we were young and and impressionable, I mean, I feel like that sort of mystique stays. Hmm. One thing I will say about this podcast is there's a lot of fantastic tape in this podcast. Um, I'll get to my criticisms of how that's treated later. But my favorite tape in the whole podcast is of the museum director, John Kelsch who we are first introduced to when he sort of talks about the slippers coming his way and when he finds out that they've disappeared. Can I, can I talk about that? Yeah. I, because he sounds like the world's biggest dope. Yes. Uh, I just have to say it. Although, you know, although I think that it's always good to have some observational exposition about these kinds of things, you don't need to point out that he's an idiot. Right. <laughs> it is just there. And it happens. The, the biggest thing happens to come when he's giving his perception of when he learned that the ruby slippers were gone. And his quote was, I'd just gotten out of the shower, and all she said was, they're gone. Big pause. And I knew right away that the slippers were gone. (laughs) (laughs) But we also hear Lara, the security at this museum where these slippers were kept, the owner, Michael Shaw, put them on loan and he basically said, you know, don't handle them a lot. And they interpreted that as we're not allowed to put them in the safe. And we also found out that the alarm was turned off because the guy was like, oh, we thought if we turn off the alarm because it was annoying, it was going off all the time, it would surely come back on at night. They never asked that question. The door to the exhibit was left open. What do you think of the security measures at this museum? How do they how do they compare to, say, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum at the time of that heist? Yeah, I, I think it's absurd. 
Absolutely. Like, absurd. Listening to the lack of security around these ruby slippers and then this sort of like, how could I be a suspect as the owner of these slippers when people think this guy's like doing some sort of insurance fraud because clearly they were set up in a way that was pretty easy to steal and he did have that insurance policy on them. But again, it's like, so some people places high, high value on this memorabilia and other people do not. But I mean, this museum, did they never expect that something like this could happen? It's like I was thinking a lot about The Feather Thief, which is a book that we read for Toby's book club, where there was this like same thing. They had these, but they had a somewhat better security system in this museum where the feathers were stolen from. And I was thinking about the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist as well. So I think it was crazy that they didn't have security. But then I think that the people that were involved acting so horrified that that this looked like an inside job, like how the hell could it not look like an inside job? I mean, uh, like face value, it looks pretty blatantly sloppy at like the bare minimum. Hmm. Toby, what did you think of just the writing around that part? Because I thought there was like, I mean, given and I'll, I'll just say it, maybe some listeners will disagree with me. To me, this is a crime with almost no victims and almost no real consequences. And there are parts that are so, to me, funny that like I found funny, but that it almost seems like the hosts had very little awareness or no awareness that they were funny and that they actually should have been played for like a little bit funnier. I mean, what did you think sort of the tone of that, especially that section with the museum director and the kind of like bumbling idiocy like one of my favorite parts is when they flip back to the owner michael shaw after we've heard about all the bumbling idiocy idiocy and he just goes on this rant about like how idiotic these people are they had no connection with the police like i was told they had lied to me and then to make matters worse that creep of a director tried to implicate me in the robbery Toby, what do you think? Do you think that should have been played for like slightly more humor? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think we can talk about this a little bit more in a minute. I thought one of the funniest things I've ever heard listening to podcasts for crime writers was at one point, I, I think it's the guys that had the, the director of the museum is like, you know, I thought it might be an inside job or something. He says, but then a lot of my staff and even the munchkins said, no, it's Michael Shaw. He did it. Even the munchkins. I was like, even the munchkins do? Well, that's that's some good info right there. Uh, so it's, it's so weird. Um, I just found myself thinking, Toby, like, what would Dan Taberski do with this exact tape? Yeah. That's all I could think of was like, you could take all of this exact tape and just hand it to him and let him write around it. Yeah. Not like we didn't need the cues to laugh, but it could have been like we, we should have had some underlining. It was the absurdity it was just never underlined for me. So this is sort of larger criticism of this podcast. And I and it's tough because I, I kind of think there's there's basically three different strings in this podcast. And one of them is stealing the ruby slippers, which like in some ways it's just like kind of the definition of camp, right? You can just mm-hmm. you can make it very campy. You know, you've got this guy who says even the munchkins think the owner did it, and it's like, dude, they're not really munchkins. And then you've got this like I think very sad string, which is both Judy Garland's story, which is horrifying, and then it's all these like older gay men talking about how much the Wizard of Oz and because of that, Judy Garland and the Ruby Slippers and stuff mean to them because they were such a symbol of acceptance. 
that they were deprived of in their lives. And I just found that very, very sad. Mm. So there's, so you've got campy, you've got sad, and then there's the whole sort of investigation stuff they do, like the the sort of more traditional true crime stuff they do, which I which I think there's quite a bit there that they've done. But all three of these things, I think, sort of asked to be handled differently. Mm. And they're all kind of handled the same. I completely agree with you. And they're all they're handled in chapters instead of weaving them together in a way that makes more sense. Yeah. So it just kind of ends up being this sort of the parts that should be kind of funny and whimsical are kind of grim. The parts that are depressing and sad are also kind of grim. Hmm. And then the true crime stuff is also fairly grim. Hmm. So I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of wish there had been a little bit more variance of mood and maybe a little more thought given to how all these pieces kind of fit together, like emotionally maybe, or, or mood wise. I, I, I'm not quite sure how to express that thought. I call it joyless. I think this podcast had so much opportunity to have some injection of joy, not like Ha ha happy, but like in the storytelling. And that's why I keep thinking of the Dan Taberski thing, because Dan Taberski uh, is a, a great example of a storyteller who can even tell you like an extremely dark, extremely grim story. And his joy of telling the story comes through and his observations about like imagine his observations about that museum director. It's like the Bob blah blah thing all over again, or even like. Uh, well, that's a high bar. To but ask. what was I know? But Dan Taberski but, saying, but there do. was none. There was no joy. I no. Yeah, and it was, it was hard to tell them apart. Too. Well, yeah, and let's talk about that because Laura, the hosts don't really do a lot of introducing of themselves, why they're telling the story, who they are. It actually took me like two episodes to realize there were two people. No, I turned to you and I said, are there two hosts? I know. The deal was so messy, it's become the stuff of legend in the memorabilia world. One side of the story goes like this. Film icon Debbie Reynolds wanted to buy the last pair of slippers. Well, this is the whole thing. Sometimes there are two hosts for a reason, and sometimes there are two hosts just because they want to have two different voices. And I'm not going to criticize the fact that two people sound alike because that's just the way they sound, and that is that's that. But also, Laura, we never get a sense of, like, who they are and why they are telling the story, which would ground you into, like, why we're flipping back and forth between these two women, right? Yeah, I had no idea who they were, and I, I should have looked it up. I, I didn't. I, it reminded me of The Orange Tree, where we had, like, the two hosts that were working on the project together, and so they both got, like, an equal share of, like, the narration of the podcast when they got to that point, when they were recording. I don't think it, like, brought anything to the podcast having two hosts, because if they were having, like, this, like, fun, like, Thelma and Louise adventure while they were investigating the theft of the ruby slippers, that would be a different thing. But they really weren't. So for me, honestly, after a while, I just didn't even pay attention to who was narrating because it was like there was no reason to. They were just there to tell the story. But I didn't feel any sort of connection to who these people were that were telling the story. Right. Well, I mean, Ariel was the journalist. Ram Chandani. She wrote about it for The Additive. She wrote about it for the magazine. She's listed as the writer of the podcast. Right. I'm not sure what Sayward Darby's contribution is other than as a narrator. Yep. But you're right. They, they sound so close that I kept thinking when they went to somebody else that it was just the same person, but dropping in an extra line yes. from a different microphone. Like a retape. It was just yeah. that close. And it's not a criticism of the way people sound. It's just an observation that, because, hey, uh, on outside-in, Taylor Quimby and Sam, uh, Evans, Sam Brown. Evans Brown sound exactly the same, but they too. And sometimes person. they talk to each other. Yes. So, but, but they bring something different. You hear them. They, they, they sound different because they're saying something different. It does affect 
the way the podcast is presented. Yeah, it's yeah. a way to experience, right? The experience of it. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. So, Laura, were you surprised when we got to episode, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? <laughs> and after sort of wrapping up the story about what happened, now we get to a new investigation. Were you surprised that there was a new investigation happening in this show? Yes. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, the timeline for me was a little bit, um, it wasn't as finely defined as uh, it could have been. So I think if for me going in, it would have been good to know that, hey, in like 2018 or whatever, there was some new developments in this case. And we're going to get to those, but we're going to tell you what happened before that type thing. This whole ending reminded me a lot more of the Gardner Museum heist and that it now seems like it's tied to some sort of organized crime and that like the paintings that were stolen in that heist, they're never going to be displayed anywhere that anybody's going to see because Mm. they're in somebody's secret collection. And I felt like the ruby slippers were in the same boat. You know, the only sort of constant thread leading up to that current investigation was that one detective was Matson, who seems to be kind of a central investigative figure in this. But the new part of it almost felt like a different type of story. Yeah. um, I wish that they had teased that or foreshadowed that. Signaled it. Signaled it uh, ahead of time because they did do some you know, legitimate legwork. They weren't just recounting something that had happened in the past. They're continuing to advance the story. But I'll tell you, if they mentioned that in the first episode, it did not register at all. It certainly wasn't alluded to anywhere else. So when it comes to episode seven, to find out, yeah, we're calling people and we're going to come with, you know, the FBI's not naming names, but maybe we can figure it out. That's good legwork. But I had no idea that was coming. Hmm. And I would have liked to have sort of known as we're you know, going back down memory lane and talking about Judy Garland's funeral hmm. and uh, who, you know, the guy who got Robin Hood's cloak, that there was something more investigatively substantial that was coming. And I think that only because you want people to continue to listen week after week. Yeah, it just seemed like after episode six, okay, well, what's left? And then episode seven is kind of a surprise as to where it's going. A pleasant surprise, but I would hate to have lost people along the way because they didn't know that there was something more coming. And at this point, we haven't heard episode eight, so we don't know if they land the plane, but give them credit for taking a swing. Toby, let's talk about the Judy Garland part of the podcast, because they do kind of devote an episode to Judy Garland and her life and her like extraordinarily sad life. Um, One thing that I think the podcast I, I don't want to say they don't do it well because I think they tried, but the the thing that they don't they don't really draw a direct line to how much this movie that means so much to so many people directly ruined this woman's life and like the I think li- they did that well they they did but it was like I don't know I, I I had some issues with the storytelling we'll talk about that in the review portion but I found that you know the Judy Garland story and there's just a movie about it like last year that came out people think they know everything but there's more there like they had her son like in the podcast what did you think of that part of the story just kind of hearing about this town that basically didn't want to have anything to do with her. They'd rather have hockey players in their museums than Judy Garland, the most famous star to ever come out of this tiny place. Yeah, well, I I don't know much about Judy Garland at all, Um, but I know more now. You know, the whole thing about having to, like, give her uppers in the morning and downers so she could sleep at night and she's getting, like, 
15 minute lessons for her classes and stuff. And then how that kind of played out later in sort of obsessing over older men and, you know, the stuff they have of her talking about her life is just absolutely horrifying. I mean, I, th- I thought they did a good job with that. I mean, it was, a, it was, it was a rough listen just from sort of a human empathy standpoint. I thought the whole thing about Grand Rapids was also interesting and I could kind of see, like, if you're in this town and it's basically this family of like little star, you know, theater kids, and they basically blow town to go to LA and then get huge and then never come back ever. And then somebody in town's like, let's make a big thing about this. It'd be like, why? Like, they literally like thought they were too big for our town and blue town and then became celebrities and never came back. And mm. Well, you're not making movies in your town, dickhead. Not for nothing, They're- but her dad sounds like he may have been a pedophile. Yeah, might have, right. Might have, could have been right, more yeah. about him. But Just it seemed like they were that. kind of like driving out of town, you know, goodbye and good riddance. So why would you, why would you want to pump that up? And then again, it seems like the people who are doing the Judy Garland Museum aren't like Judy Garland. Grand Rapids, greatest ever citizen. No, it's like we want a Judy Garland museum, and this seems like a place to do it because right. this is where she grew up. Right. You know, but it's doesn't. It's not about her relationship to the town. Right. Kevin, one quick question for you, production wise. Yeah. Uh, all the interview tape in the podcast was excellent. Like the quality of it was excellent. All the field tape. Did you find yourself surprised at how much sort of the um, audio of? I mean, they obviously like. Got the rights. I know you're going to ask me. The, the the clips from The Wizard of Oz. But they got the rights to use it. They must have gotten the rights to use it. I'm it just going to assume. It must have been really expensive. Let's just assume they got the rights to use it. Why did it sound like that? It sounded I like I was watching it like on TV. like they taped it off of a television. Only at the end of the movie does she learn that they have the mysterious power to carry her home. Oh, will you help me? Can you help me? You don't need to be helped any longer. You've always had the power to go back. I mean, those are important stuff because they are trying to use it to achieve an effect right. by uh, capturing the essence of the movie or just using you know, a famous quote to make a point. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Or one of those things. I don't know. These guys are like among the best podcast production companies. In terms of audio, yeah, in terms of sound. I, yeah, I don't know why like they couldn't there must have been a patch that they could have put on there to make it sound a little brighter. They also, I don't know. What's that was that Laura? I was gonna say it kind of when I heard it, I noticed this like, you know, it was it was pretty stark from like one to the other. But then I was like, it kind of reminded me of watching it you know, as a child, because it had that sort of old timey sort of feel to it because it was more scratchy and it didn't sound as clean and crisp as audio that they might have doctored up. Mm. Do you think, Kevin, they also had to license that audio from the Judy Garland concert? That I'm was, sure they did, yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you guys for spending I, all I'm that sure money and licensing that stuff. Plus, plus her very dramatic interview for her own biography. Oh, my God. That was amazing. Yeah, that's, it's, that's insane. It was, I mean... All right, I'm just going to say I it. deserve some love. That should have been the first episode of the podcast. Like, no, 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 no. Absolutely. No, the crime, of course. I completely the disagree. Cr- what? Well, okay, here's what I think. The crime could be episode one. The Judy Garland story should have been episode two. That should have been way up As front. opposed to the town story. That was the most interesting. Eh, I disagree with you, but okay. All right, well, all right. Let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out No Place Like Home? It's a podcast from C13 Originals about the famous theft of the ruby slippers from the Wizard of Oz from a tiny museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Um, This is a tough one. Um, I definitely found parts of this really interesting, like the background about Judy Garland. I wish I lived in that town where she grew up because it sounded like her house was a very interesting place to have in town. 
And the theft of the ruby slippers is really interesting to me. Um, My issue was I just felt like this was seven episodes, eight episodes I've listened to. I can't remember at this point. And it kind of meandered and felt like it got bogged down. And I felt like there was definitely an opportunity to definitely zip this up a little bit more. So I'm going to go with thumb sideways because if you're really interested, you know, if you grew up in a certain era and watching The Wizard of Oz was like this annual sort of thing that you did, you might find this interesting. I don't know if you're going to find it interesting for this many episodes, but give it a try. Toby Ball, what do you think? Um, You know, I, I liked it. I think it could have been great. They've got, as you've been saying, they've got all these interesting interviews. I think there's a lot of different components to this each of which I think at least held my interest. And I, I thought it was good. Uh, again, I'll go back to the, the, what I said before in that I wish they'd been able to be maybe a little more imaginative into how they address those three different sort of strings that went through it. I think the raw material is here for something great. I think what they ended up with, uh, because it is kind of monotone in some ways, was just sort of good. Uh, so I'll give it a thumbs up. Um, but the potential was there for it to be like a big thumbs up. And instead, it's sort of a moderate thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. All right, I'm going to decide after I speak because I'm right on me too. the razor's edge. Of, me too. I wanted, I wanted Lara and Toby to talk me into something. So I guess I'm on my own here. Look, <laughs> I do not hate this podcast. This, the story is really interesting, but let's be real. It's not the Hope Diamond. It is the Ruby Slipper. So the opportunity to tell this story in a brighter way, a little more self-aware and winky, was there. Toby often says, we really shouldn't put down a podcast because it isn't something else. But I feel like, oh, I really could have gone for something that was brighter. I love the, you know, the side trips about Hollywood memorabilia and Judy Garland and all that other stuff. You know, truthfully, it doesn't really advance the plot other than the thing about the history of the slippers. So it doesn't really advance the story, but I do like it. And you're right, it has sort of all the elements. If I had to make a checklist of, okay, these are the things you're going to need to tell this story, they have them all. I don't know if it just comes together with a lot of flavor, but it's all there. So I guess, all right, I was going to go sideways, but I'll give it a slight thumbs up. Ah, you guys are not helping me at all. Um, (laughs) All right, I'm just going to say this. Cadence 13, C13, this group of companies, Mm -hmm. they know how to make a good podcast. We know they know how to make a good podcast. That sounds great. That is good. Uh, This is really hard for me because... You know, I feel like these reporters, these hosts, like I may run into them in another situation and like they, I might really love something that they do. This was the joylessness of this for me was such a fucking downer. Like I listened to it on one and a half speed just to sort of like I was like, maybe if they sound a little bit more like like munchkin, <laughs> I'll like it better. Um, they had everything. How would you like someone to come along and pick something off of you? Exactly. The tape in this is some of the best tape we've heard in a podcast this year because it sounds like pre-pandemic tape. It's all live. They have all the law enforcement people. They have the FBI guy. They have the cop. They have the museum director. The guy who owns the slippers. They have all these fans. They have Judy Garland's son. Everything that you need is there. But it's almost like the connective tissue, the sort of joyless, sad writing that just sounded like this. It was like, blah, 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 blah. Great clip. Da, 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 da. Great clip. <sighs> I think this is one of those situations where 
it could have been great because great people were involved in making it. It should have been better than it was. I didn't hate it either, but I got to give it a thumbs down. Well, you, you remind me of my favorite quote from The Wizard of Oz. What's that? Which is a scarecrow saying, there are people who go both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So, Kevin, here we are in the business section, as you've just signaled. Bring it on, bitches. <laughs> what do we got going on our Patreon right now, Kevin? Oh, we got the latest episode of the Crime Riders on After Show. What are we talking about? We're going to be giving our summer television recommendations. Like one each, right? We're keeping it tight. Are we going to be giving like a big list? I don't know. You don't, you don't want people to have a nice, substantial oh, sure. Crime Riders on After Show? Yeah. I don't know. We haven't talked about That's it yet. That's true. But we've right got- now, Toby's furiously Googling things. Yeah, he's like, hmm, what should I do? He's going through his like guide. doing anything. Uh, turn, uh, oh, look, the Wizard of Oz is on Wednesday night. When is the sound of music Music. Oh, there's that. That Rolf man, that little fucking Nazi, oh, that la, la. kid. Anyway, uh, so that's what was we're doing. was 16 going on 17? That was her. That was Lisa. Oh, was she 15 oh, going on 16? Going on. <laughs> he was 17 going on uh, 18. Yeah, yes. You're 45 oh. going on 17. I'm 47. Going on. Going 15. on. Toby, can you sing it? No. I don't know what you're talking about. He's not about. a little baby I Nazi. Am 16 going on 17. Yeah, don't do that. No one, that's not what we're about. What <laughs> else have we got going on on our, our uh, Patreon right now, Kevin? Okay, we're going to be getting very shortly the uh, latest episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. The book is called Last Call. Yes. And Toby, tell us about how it went with your two great guests. Yeah, I had uh, Sarah D. Bunting and Janet Varney, and uh, yeah, it was a great conversation. The book, the book is really good. Um, oh, thank God, because Elon Green actually listens to this fucking podcast. Thank God well, you just said that. All right, well, <laughs> even if he didn't Thumbs listen sideways. to this podcast, it's still a good book. Um, and uh, it's an interesting conversation, I, I think, because both uh, we talked about the, the subject matter of the book, but also the way in which he does and doesn't kind of conform to like the normal stuff for true crime books and how the ways in which he, he doesn't conform to that really, I think made the book better. Mm. So anyway, that's a not very eloquent way of sort of summing up what we talked about, but I think people will enjoy it. Um, and Elon green, excellent. Bless excellent you. <laughs> now Toby, you've actually got a lot of other things going on. You want to share in the business section. 
Yeah, I've been busy. So uh, anyway, if you're like one of the millions of people around the world who's been waiting for Strange Arrivals to be finished so you can just binge it all at once. <laughs> That's me. Um, it is done. The last episode has come out by the time this drops. There's going to be some uh, bonus episodes with, with longer interviews with people. But the actual uh, story itself is done. So 13 episodes. Check it out if you haven't listened to it before. I also... Uh, my producer, Alex Williams, has a show called Ephemeral, and the most recent episode of Ephemeral is looking at strange arrivals, like the themes and some of the cases we looked at, but with a whole different kind of feel and sound to it. So check that out. And then finally, I was on Stuff They Don't Want You To Know uh, with those guys who completely know their stuff. We had a fun conversation. So I'm all over the place. Wow. What'd you talk, the, uh, about? What'd you talk about on Stuff You Don't Want To Know? Uh, we talked about something I talked about in Strange Arrivals, largely sort of the creation of UFO folklore. Uh, we talked about some of the personalities that I talked to as part of the research and interviewing process. And just, I mean, th- those guys have been doing this stuff for years, so they're very knowledgeable. Uh, so it was a fun, it was a fun conversation. I forgot to mention during No Place Like Home how I thought Toby would have loved it because of the feuds among subcultures. Yes. <laughs> yes, there was a there was a lot of that. Oh my god, if that could have been a whole episode, like the collectors. I thought it kind of was, but it was right, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And like and also the FBI versus the cops. So many feuds among so many subcultures. All right, Kevin, before we wrap up the business section, do I, we have I have a business section announcement? Oh, wait. Oh. All right, Laura, I'm sorry. What is your business section announcement? Um my business section announcement is by the time this podcast comes out, you are going to be able to pre-order my new Exeter Mystery book, book one in the Piper Green Exeter Mystery, Dead on Deadline. You can Mm. order it wherever you get your books, or if you want a signed personalized copy and you are from not my area, if you go to Water Street Bookstore, my wonderful independent bookstore, order through them, I'll go down and sign it and they'll send it to you for free. Wow, that's wow, what I'm going to do. Awesome. I'm writing it down. I'm going to order mine through Congratulations. Water Street. When can I order that through Water Street Bookstore? It's going to be up by the time this podcast comes nice. out. Nice. So I can also pre-order through Amazon or any other place yep. where I buy books, Powell's, and it's whatever. Going Great. Anywhere you buy your books, and it's actually going to be out on September 1st. Fantastic. Excellent. We'll put a link in this week's uh, CWO newsletter. Yes, maybe in the, yeah, not in the show notes, but the newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter. It's free. I Go love to crimewriterson.com. Sign up there. It's free and it's freaking awesome. Sign up there. All right, Kevin, before we move on, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Kate King and Robert Jonathan Ball. Bless Hey, you. I know that guy. Robert Jonathan Ball, is he related to Toby Ball? That's my dad. Yeah, I know. Ah. <laughs> You might want to throw in my mom's name there, too. Faith? I'm sorry. I only have Robert Jonathan Ball down as a patron. Yeah. Uh, My mom's getting dissed. Clearly there's only one name on the credit card in that family. All right. It's been a a big ball section. Yes, it has. (laughs) I mean, we should call Chuck from the FBI. That's right. Uh, All right. (laughs) All right. And thus ends, Kevin, the business section? The business section. Get rid of that music. Let's fade that out. Moving on. We're all human. We all make mistakes. It's just that in this line of work, the consequences of those mistakes are simply more consequential. But not you. No mistakes. No, (laughs) ma'am. Not me.
A pair of Dallas surgeons are alarmed by the growing number of botched surgeries by their new colleague, Christopher Dunch. The neurosurgeon is charming and self-assured, but his lack of skill and his bad outcomes raise alarms. Could it have been human error? Sure. Yeah, why not? But after that case in January, Dunch had a bunch more, which were all, shall we say, less than successful. But two of them were borderline monstrous. One is sipping through a straw for the rest of his life, quadriplegic. The other, back in March, dies on his table after he slices through her vertebral artery. Dunch leaves a trail of maimed, paralyzed, and dead patients, while hospital administrators and medical regulators look the other way. The pair convince a prosecutor the only way Dunch could bunkle the surgery so badly would be if he were doing it on purpose. I don't know medicine. That's why I so desperately need your expertise. But all due respect, you don't understand the law. You don't understand who we're after. Dr. Kirby is correct, and believe me, there is no string of four words I find more disagreeable. The Peacock Originals eight-part dramatic adaptation of Dr. Death features Alec Baldwin, Christian Slater, and Joshua Jackson as Dunch. It's the medical procedural soap opera buddy movie think piece courtroom drama of the summer. Does it live up to the classic Wondery podcast it's derived from, or is it even better? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points for Dr. Death, so to remain completely spoiler-free, even though this is a story that was in the news and also on a podcast, go to the time code listed in our show notes to hear a thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Kevin, yeah. this is three things, or four things, so here's what I think it was. Uh-huh. Starts as true crime, then it's a buddy movie, then it's an arty movie, then it is a procedural, like a courtroom procedural. It has a lot of different styles? techniques and styles. It's bananas. Well, really, there are three acts to this. You've got the, the discovery of the past. You have the present attempts to rein in Dr. Dunch by both the authorities and by these two doctors. And then we have the trial to stop him. Mm. But it does employ a lot of different things, and you're right. There is there is a definite buddy comedy kind of partnership between uh, Alec Baldwin's character, I think it's Dr. Henderson, and Dr. Kirby, who's played by Christian Slater. Who's fucking fantastic. Yeah. Fucking caveman could do it, am I right? <laughs> Got the patient opened up, disc sitting right there, shiny red bike under the tree, Christmas morning, just waiting to be plucked out and the device plopped in. Now, what would you do? What would you ask? I'm decomposing here, Dr. Kirby. People tell me I have the flair for the melodrama. I can't imagine why. I like to call it passion. What would you ask for? A scalpel. Fucking ain't right you would. Everybody would. This yacht's asked for a double action rangeur. But also, Toby, there are some stylistic changes right in the middle of the series. It kind of gets really cheeky. When Dr. Dunch moves to Dallas, for instance, is a whole opening that replicates the opening of the 80s TV soap opera Dallas. Uh, there's sort of two episodes in the middle of there that, like, stylistically are completely a left turn from what we've seen in the first couple episodes of the series. I'm curious, Toby, what did you think of the many tonal shifts that happened in Dr. Death? I thought it was good. And I think there's been sort of a trend towards that in these kinds of series. And I don't know if it started with Watchmen or or, or what, but it you know, there there is these different feels to things, and I think that keeps things interesting. You know, one thing, the beginning of one of the episodes, I think it's the beginning it's where they're at a uh, reception for Dunch when he moves yes. to this new hospital. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of weird stuff going on. You're like, why is that guy here? Why is that guy there? And then there's a scene where you're underneath, like you're looking up through the floor as Glass you walk. Glass floor, yeah. And I was like, 
what is this? Like, why are they doing it like this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, nobody could act. This isn't actually a point of view. And I was getting kind of like annoyed with it. And then when it turns out, it was just like Alec Baldwin imagining what it would be like. It's a dream sequence, like a twenty-minute dream sequence. I was like, that was. Do you notice it was one long shot until he got to that part? I didn't notice that one continuous shot. That yeah. I mean, it was it was just super clever. Like when it was done, I was like, oh shit. Like, that totally makes sense now that you know that it's his imagining things. Toby, one other thing that's going to blow your mind. Did you notice the title of that episode? It was called An Occurrence at uh, oh, it's like Kirby's. Oh, Owl Creek Bridge or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's like Occurrence at Owl Creek on Bridge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because hmm. there was another one that was uh, Doc Ellis. Right. Like Doc Ellis, the basketball player slash coach. Yeah. No, he was no, he was the baseball player who uh, oh, thought he wasn't mind. pitching one day and took oh, LSD. That's right. Yeah. And then pitched Back a no-hitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of Doc River. Sorry, of Doc, Doc River. River. <laughs> Doc River. <laughs> that would have been a different That's episode. Sportist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sportist. Um, yeah. So I thought I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed this. Now, Laura, one of the things that was so interesting to me about this show, aside from the fact that I think the three male leads on the show are all fucking incredible. By the way, Joshua Jackson, Pacey for Life. All that aside, was the amount to which the show humanized pretty much every character, especially Christopher Dunch. Like, they sort of set us up to think he's a psychopath. He's, you know, he's cold-blooded. He's this. But we see so many intimate scenes of him trying to get his, like, dad's approval. That's a couple of points where it really seems like he's trying to do better. And I found myself thinking, like, why are they doing this? Like, why are they making me, like, like Mm -hmm. him? And then I realized that's actually really smart because it's not the typical true crime thing of cold-hearted snake villain, like, we just hate him. What did you think about that, like, extreme humanization? I thought this was, um, in a different way, more engaging than the podcast. The podcast was just, like, horrific when we heard the story for the first time. But this, they turned it into, like, a medical thriller in the way that it was told and that we have a villain. I definitely felt a lot more sympathy for him this time when you see his father, you know, coming down hard on him. But then at the end, I was like, I was kind of glad his father was coming hard down on him. But, you know, we also see these side characters that didn't, play as big a role in the podcast or if they did they didn't feel as like three-dimensional to me so we have the prosecutor going for this case uh we have this bromance with christian slater and alec baldwin Mm. um you know teaming up and then obviously we have the father and and he feels like a real character in this i really felt like that relationship between him and Chris, even when Dunch is like fucking up beyond belief, he goes and bails him out. But I think it added a layer of suspense to this that wasn't in the podcast because you were more emotionally connected to all these characters that were involved. Speaking of suspense, I want to stir up some shit about about the about the very first shot. Why are you shit, man? Well I just want to see what you think. The very first shot is a shot of Dunch in prison. And then we go to the story. I feel like that for a lot of people who are going to come to this without without having listened to the podcast, that they just gave away the ending. So instead, while you're watching this, instead of wondering, is he going to get away with it? You're just wondering, how do they end up catching him? Hmm. And I think it took away some of the urgency and some of the peril 
of the whole the whole thing. Um, does anybody think like it's a little thing? No, I would have taken that out as well. Uh, what, what do you guys think? No, I agree with you. I do agree with you. Am I overthinking it? Well, so I guess when I think about why did they make that choice, because it's not the obvious choice. I don't know if part of it is to change your attention from is he going to get caught or is he not going to get caught to how does he keep going Mm. uh, for this period of time? Like, how does Mm -hmm. he not get caught earlier? How does this continue? Um, And maybe that's what they want you to think about. But I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm pretty much with you. I mean, I wouldn't. You wouldn't start the usual suspects with Kevin Spacey skipping down the street, right? Right, right. I am Kaiser. So, so I just, you know, I, it's more alert. a matter of, of agreeing with you and trying to put myself in the heads of yeah. the people who are putting this thing together. They made a lot of great creative choices. That one, which because yeah. it's the very first one. I think Laura had thoughts about that too. Sorry, right, Laura? sorry, Laura. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, and I agree with all you said because, like I was saying before, like I did feel like there was more of a level of suspense watching this, like a medical thriller sort of docudrama, but at the same time. When you do see that first scene, even if you know what's going to happen, because we obviously knew what was going to happen in the story, I don't think that was the best setup for it in terms of maintaining that level of suspense and sort of angst as you are watching this and like wondering, oh, my gosh, you know, especially when you see this, you know, this young prosecutor who's trying everything to like, you know, get this guy. We know eventually she's going to get him. So, you know, that that does take away some of that theatrical you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Michelle Shugard is the real life prosecutor portrayed there by Anna Sophia Robb in her is, basketball um, gym. Yeah. Violet Beauregard. Yes. Young Carrie Bradshaw. Yes. Yeah. By the way, Toby has thoughts. Uh, we were on vacation and we. I said to Toby, I'm like, I'm dying to know what you're going to think about this. Like, text me while it's happening because I'm dying to know what you're going to think because it's just so fucking weird in like a banana's way. And Toby sent me a series, a long series of texts about how he did not believe that Pacey was convincing as a football player. So, Toby, let's talk about your feelings about when directors or filmmakers try to do sports in a non-sports thing with non-sports actors. No offense, Joshua Jackson, you may have played football. I don't fucking know. You're done. No, coach, coach, I got this. No, you don't got this. I got this, coach. Seriously, one more try, please, please. We cross plug zero, hit the A gap. One more try. I don't feel like he probably played football. Um, <laughs> but, did, but did the lawyer play basketball the way she was throwing him up like that? <laughs> Two hands? She was sort of like a fourth grader learning yeah. how to Yeah, she's like, <laughs> I, you know, I like, to, I like to unwind by playing hoops. Shooting. All that time, she should be a better shooter. Yeah, it used to like kind of drive me nuts when I would see that. I'd be like, Jesus, like that guy, like Ed Norton. Like Ed Norton is like the classic. It's like, couldn't they have like spent half an hour with him showing him how to shoot a basketball in a way that was like somewhat convincing <laughs> instead of whatever it is that he's doing? But now I've come to kind of appreciate it. The fact that both the actors and the directors are willing to be like, ah, you know what? Screw it. We're just going to pretend that he's a, you know, a really good football player or screw it. She likes to unwind playing hoops and we're going to show it. By having her take five foot set shots and look like mildly sweaty. Hmm. So I embrace it now. You know she gets dunked on for real though, right? She's like four Shot, feet tall. Stops, goes to throw okay. it something and goes, SWAT! To anybody, mouse in the house, just going to post her up. <laughs> you had thoughts about the sports too. Well, yeah, look, last week in our feed, we did our classic rewind of our original review of Dr. Death. And one of the things I talked about was that scene in the podcast that we're talking about where uh, he couldn't get the drill down. And so he kept asking to go back and do the drill. 
do the drill. And a lot of people at the time took it as, oh, look, he's a hard worker. And my observation at the time was like, no, he's an asshole because he's selfish and he's keeping the whole team down. I have a completely new observation on that. What's that? When you see him in the dramatic version here, when you see him running at the tackling dummy and it says go right and he can't go right, it leads me to believe there is something that's a red flag about his ability to be able to do the surgery. Oh, so he Some kind of spatial, spatial yeah, thing. That's actually a good observation. You know, it's like, oh, well, no wonder he can't go in and he's hitting these arteries and wh- whatever the hell. He can't run right. You know, it's... He has no sense of direction. Yeah. But that, that, I, that happens again, right? Doesn't it? Where they're in a, a surgery or something and they're like, you know, a little bit to the right and he's like, starts moving. They're like, which one's your right? Yeah. And he's like... Your other oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, as opposed to being illustrative of his personality, I think here that like we have a real red flag about his ability to do shit. Mm. And you need to be able to do shit to be a surgeon. You need to know you're right from left. That's for fucking yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Laura, I do want to talk a little bit more about the characters here because they, I think, are just so fleshed out and so fucking interesting. Uh, let's talk about Jerry for one because- uh. Poor In Jerry. the podcast, I mean, I, I liked the podcast, but the podcast just tells the story and the podcast is more about the malfeasance of the medical system, like letting him go and his deeds. This gives us an opportunity to dig a little bit more, and even though it's fictional, into who these people were. And we first see Jerry, and he's this, like, for lack of a better word, sort of, like, loser who lives in Dunch's town. He comes back. He's having this big drug-fueled party at his Nana's house. And he just sort of gloms onto him and, like, really depends on Dunch to sort of be his ticket and would do anything for him despite not having a lot of skill as demonstrated in the scene where he, like, is trying to make the film for the practice and he keeps, like, jumping into the room in the middle of shots. Uh-huh. Um, what did you think of Jerry? And it, it just it feels more consequential to me when we know what happened to him. Yeah, I felt horrified by the Jerry situation when we listened to the podcast, because it's like, this is somebody that, you know, was related to him. This is somebody that he was close with. And and the fact that, you know, he's basically quadriplegic now for the rest of his life because Dunch fucked it up. But seeing... Just this- interrupt you for a second. He died in 2021, guys. No. Oh, he did. Jerry did? Yes. Uh. R.I.P. Jerry. Sorry, I looked it uh, up while we were awful. watching it. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead, Poor Laura. Jerry. Um, so, but I think, you know, watching this where we see this friendship or this relationship between Jerry and Dunst, and you watch how, you know, he basically follows him out to Texas, and it kind of looks like he lives in his house, and he's helping out with everything that's going on, but he's so dedicated and devoted to him. And then that scene where he's then in the bed and he's after surgery and he realizes something's wrong and he's calling for him and he doesn't come. I can't feel shit. Chris! 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 I just felt like that hit me in a different way watching it than it did listening to it on the podcast because you really got the feeling of how horrific this 
was. And then next scene, then you see him in like this halo, like immobilizing his head. And now he can't move at all. Yeah. But then to then fast forward to him refusing to testify against him in the trial and along the same lines while you're at the trial, hearing about his head basically being detached from his body because of how severe this surgery was. So I just, I came away feeling really kind of sick to my stomach about the Jerry segment of this this time because it felt much more real watching Mm. it than it did listening to it for me. No, I totally agree. And, you know, all the, I, I went into a Jerry wormhole while we were watching this. That's how I found out he died in February 2021. Uh, and it's true. He did the surgery to try to give his friend a win. Like, that's why he did it, mm. which is came out in the trial. And it's just so unbelievably sad. Kevin, a character that I don't particularly remember from the podcast that was a big participant in the dramatized version and then in my reading also was a big character in the real story was Kim Morgan. Uh, Mm -hmm. portrayed here by Grace Gummer, one of those uh, Meryl Streep daughters. And I hate to, like, name somebody by, like, who their parent is. But, like, those daughters, man, they look a lot like their mom. Um, (laughs) What did you think of sort of the Kim Morgan storyline as it played out in the dramatization of Dr. Death? It was good. I think, you know, we talk about the stylized nature of it. The whole scene where she gets the phone call... At the pool. At the pool to come for this interview. And then she shows up in these jean shorts, which I thought was... Kind of crazy, but there must be some truth to it. But the whole thing where there's no dialogue, it's all music, and anything that's said <laughs> popped up. It just—it was very clever. And you're right; they kept doing all sort of these little things throughout. I thought that you know she was in some way the Greek chorus. She was the one who was witness in all the operations about what was going on. And you know, of all the people that sort of beat themselves up about it. Dunch did not, hmm. but she did. And so, you know, they don't explain why she sort of left civilian medicine and joined the military to practice medicine. But, I mean, I think one can infer that she felt like she didn't belong in one place and needed to belong in another. Now, Toby, one of the things that I've seen people talk about about the show uh, that I thought was super interesting but may not be for everybody is the incessant time jumps in the storyline. You know, it's like constant, constant, constant. And we become very familiar with like six patients by name, by face. There's three in the first episode. We see them in the waiting room together. We see them sort of back and forth in these cases. And then we also see jumping back five years and then forward two years. I wasn't particularly bothered by that. I just decided to like ride the wave and go with it. Do you think that that is confusing for the viewer to sort of have this incessant number of time jumps during this show? So I guess what I would say about that is if I was a writer for this show, I think I would probably be uncomfortable with the demands it puts on people watching it to keep track of it if you really are trying to make a point by all that stuff. Uh, as a viewer... I'm just like you. Like, I was just kind of like, all right, you know, I'll I'll pick up from some cues where this is. Because it wasn't like it was like 1987 and 2004. Or, you know, it wasn't like uh, True Detective Season 1, where it was like these clearly two distinct periods of time. It was like two years ago, six months later, 18 months before. You know, it was all, it was all in this really tight timeline. It was all happening within a few years. So it was really about like... Is this happening before an event or after an event? So I, I again, like it didn't really bother me too much, but 
you know, I don't know if the writers, when they were putting it together, were like, oh, yeah, and then people will be able to, you know, see, you know, they'll figure this out because of this and this out. Like, if we make the date really big yeah, on the screen. Like I, yeah, that didn't <laughs> – I, I didn't totally get the reason for the whole thing, but uh, it didn't bother me. So I just have one final question for everyone. Now, granted – I'm talking about the fictional version of Dr. Death and what Mm -hmm. we saw on the screen. Although from all the research that I've done, which I did way more research after watching this than I did after listening to the podcast, because I was just fascinated about all the details and whether or not they were true. And many of them were very on point, except for the fact that- uh, He had two kids. He had two kids with that woman instead of one. Anyway, every other fact like that I checked out seemed to kind of check out. So just from the way that the character is portrayed in the show and his relationship with his dad and everything that we kind of see happening, I think the podcast tries to frame Dr. Dunch as just a straight psychopath, more more so of a psychopath. The show tries to give us that perspective through our buddy friends, Kirby and uh, Henderson. Henderson. It seems like there may have been something more going on. Narcissism, uh, some sort of like mental deficiency. I'm just curious. Do you guys think Dr. Dunch, the version of him we saw in this, woke up in the morning wanting to maim or kill people? Toby, what do you think? It's a tough question because I like I don't know if he wanted to, but the fact that he was going to didn't bother him. I mean, it's sort of, I, I think at one point they talk about like a drunk, dr- like sort of compare it to a drunk driver, but this almost seems like it's even different than that. It's like just knowing that you don't know how to drive and getting in a car, just realizing that you might, you could most likely will cause a crash, possibly a fatal crash, but you just go ahead and do it anyway. Cause what the hell? And you're you telling know? everyone you're perfect. I'm a perfect yeah, driver. I, like I'm a race car driver. Um, <laughs> so- I've never had any accidents. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why the why the fuck didn't that guy get out of my way? So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think they do try and keep it a little ambiguous. You know, to a certain extent, it seems like a distinction without a difference. You know, he he doesn't have the empathy for other people that you would expect to have in a surgeon who's opening up your back and messing around with your spine or your mom's back. What do you think, Laura? Do you think the show? portrays him as a straight psychopath, as a narcissist, something in between, somebody who's really damaged. I'm just curious about your takeaways. I think something in between. I mean, I think he's deaf, like the narcissism comes through, like, and the grandiose sort of mania, the doing drugs all night, staying up all night, getting into this like super up, up period when he's going in to do these surgeries. But the part that's hard is like, I don't think he's going in being like, I hate people and I am going to fuck them up. I think that the lack of empathy comes through so strongly in this in terms of like he doesn't give a shit. And and I think that was never more clear than when his like essentially his best friend, his only male friend is sitting there waiting for him to come check on him and he can't be bothered to do that. So I don't know. I think they humanized him more. I think and that's something I mean, how many times have I said I wish I knew the backstory of how somebody became the way they did. I came away feeling like I did understand a little more about how he became the way he did, but I didn't understand why he kept operating. Yeah. I mean, that was this whole, we didn't talk about this, the whole failure of the system, the Baylor Hospital Mm, stuff, by the way, was fucking great. Uh, But I will say, I found myself thinking there's something else going on that we can't know, right? He clearly was incredibly, is incredibly bright. Getting into medical school ain't nothing. Getting into a neurosurgery program ain't nothing. Getting into a research program ain't nothing. And, you know, clearly he has the ability to sort of skate 
and and you can't you can't pretend to be brilliant in that field. He clearly couldn't perform surgery, but it doesn't mean he wasn't brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking, like, what broke here? Was it like living in this oppressive home? Was it TBI? from like throwing himself against a dummy 10 million times when he couldn't play football, like what broke? And that's where to me that the show really succeeds in making me ask that question and not just having it be flat. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I think, well, I think you make a good point here. What, what it achieves is it doesn't demand that the TV show give you an answer. It does make you question and kind of come up in your own mind what you think. And I don't think he had criminal intent, right? But neither does the drunk driver, and they're still culpable. So it's, you know, whether or not he deserves to be in jail for life for a charge of elder abuse. I don't know if that quite that doesn't quite square a circle with me, but it's fine. He probably does belong behind bars for a very, very long time. He shouldn't be practicing medicine, obviously. But why? He seems Is he delusional, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that interview scene where he's that interrogation scene where he's rambling and talking about, you know, one of the things he says, the reason I came down here today, right? He is so Delusional. in his own world. Yeah. And like we say, oh, that guy's like somebody who's like self-centered. You're like, what a narcissist. That's narcissist lowercase n. This guy's capital N clinically narcissist. Yeah, in like the mental illness way. In the mental yeah. illness way. Yeah. DSM. Yeah. DSM, yes. yes. And so because- he can't. He just. He just can't say no. I can't do that. A lot of us to be like, oh, if I, I guess I shouldn't be doing this. Now he's like, I'm gonna. All right, I'm gonna do another one. All right, let's let our listeners know and do what we do. Should they check out the adaptation of Doctor Death? It's a dramatic adaptation of the Wondery podcast Doctor Death. It's available on Peacock. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this series? Um, this is an enthusiastic thumbs up. I mean, obviously, really unfortunate what happened, to put it mildly, horrible, the victims of Dr. Dunch. But the way that this was told, I mean, it's like there was nobody that was not in this. We have Alec Baldwin. We have Christian Slater. We have Kelsey Grammer, Frasier, evil Frasier. We have evil Pacey. Um, we have evil Pacey, who's like Tim Allen in the Santa Claus at the end when he changes uh, how he looks when he goes to jail. But I, I think this was like you know, done in the style of a medical thriller and done in such a way that, I mean, I felt like all these great actors and actresses were in this. And it's almost like they were like, they came out of the pandemic and they're like, we are so excited to be in something. We're just going (laughs) to, and I'm like, these people, I just felt like everybody did such a good job with their role in this, but it was also really engaging. And, you know, I just thought it was really well done. Yeah. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Dr. Death on Peacock? We didn't even talk about Josh Jackson's prosthetic jowls. Yes, that, uh, his prosthetic puffiness. Yeah, the we're Tim so Allen thing. Disturbing. Um, <laughs> he yeah, got a little I, bit Matt Gates esque with those like, oh, yeah. those, like oh, big face. And that hair. Yes, he's totally <laughs> Matt Gates. <laughs> Sorry, Josh Jackson. That's not you. It's yes. you with the prosthetics. Yes. Although he did like women who are older. Yeah. Than 18. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Keep going, Toby. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, so I, I really like this. I like this a lot more than some other sort of more critically lauded stuff that we've talked about in the last few months. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was inventive and engaging. And, you know, there's a lot of really good actors doing some fun scenery chewing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin and Christian Slater seem to be having, like, the best time uh, yes. doing this. 
So very high thumbs up. I was expecting to kind of have to like force myself through this whole thing. And uh, I ended up just really, really enjoying it. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up too. This adaptation lends itself very well to telling a story visually and dramatically. Um, unlike some podcasts, some stories, this one really does. I think they really do this right. Our two doctors, uh, Henderson and Kirby, they're the driving force. They write these characters the way you're supposed to. They're polar opposite so that they're distinguishable and they're fun and they can play off of each other. In real life, they're probably like super determined asshole guys, right? Like like most killer surgeons. We learned in the end that Kirby is going to plan to climb Mount Everest. You know he's super intense. <laughs> yeah. But he's not intense in the fun way that they make Christian Slater. Uh, yeah, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit with, you know, hey, I'm a spunky kid and I'm going to throw, I do basketball all the time by myself because I'm determined. But all of this stuff, the love affair, the filthiness of it, the, the way certain actors brighten up the screen and tell the story in the different ways that they do it, it all really works. And my only disappointment is that this is on Peacock and fewer people can see it mm. because it's not on something like like HBO, Netflix or HBO. Yeah. But look, if you need another reason to try your free month or whatever deal they've got, this is a good reason. Yeah, so I'm really glad we paired these two things together, No Place Like Home and Dr. Death, because No Place Like Home was an inconsequential victimless crime told in a joyless way. And this story was a very consequential, very, very consequential, serious crime. There are some scenes in this, and we shouldn't, like, make any bones about it, that are harrowing. Some of the surgery scenes are harrowing. Especially if you're me and you had neck pain when watching one of the episodes. (laughs) There's some, like, episode one is a difficult watch. Like, it is a, it can be difficult. Let me see your C5. But, But when I talk about the joyfulness of storytelling, This is an exemplary, like amazing moment here where you've taken a dark, difficult, important story and injected the joy of storytelling into it. Like the performances alone, Joshua Jackson was amazing. Christian Slater, amazing. Alec Baldwin, who I've been like knocking down for a couple of years because of his crazy wife, hilarious situation. Amazing. Grace Gummer, amazing. By the way, big shout out to Molly Griggs, who played Wendy Young incredible actress. I don't know. There's just so much to love about this. It's true crime. It's a buddy film. It's an art film. And it is a court procedural. I loved almost every minute of it. Huge thumbs up for me for Dr. Death on Peacock. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. 
But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. week. No one was hurt earlier this year when a traffic light pole collapsed in the Japanese city of Suzuka. The steel pole was corroded and snapped off at the bottom and should have lasted at least another 25 years. Upon closer inspection, officials determined the reason the pole deteriorated was because of, wait for it, too much dog pee. The light is at the intersections of some popular dog walking routes. Engineers believe the salts and acids in the urine eroded the steel over the past quarter century. They found the amount of urea at the base of the pole was 40 times more concentrated than on other traffic lights. Suzuka officials have installed a new pole and police have confirmed that yes, Dogs are pissing on that one, too. (laughs) So, panel, this could become a very expensive civil engineering problem. What else can the city do to protect their infrastructure from dog tinkle? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Oh, my God, you guys. It's so good I took that cat detective class last year. Yeah. Because we learned about something that could help in this situation. Well, it was more for coyotes. But there is actually this thing you can get that's a motion-activated sprinkler. So if Mm. you have things coming in your yard that you don't like, um, it's hooked up as soon as it passes by. It's going to squirt them with water. So you've got to fight fire with fire or fight pee with water in this case. But I think that that would possibly scare off the dogs or at least make them pee off the pole. We'll contact the embassy. Toby Ball, what do you think? What else can the city do to protect their infrastructure from dog tinkle? Uh, I was kind of interested to hear what what Laura had to say because I was thinking, like, what what scares dogs? Do you, like, put, like, bear musk on on something or you can get like, all those urine things toby you know you could just mm. have or you could just have a bunch of squirrels around to have them chase i don't know what do you think kevin yeah they need armed guards at all the fire hydrants no you know what they need what a ups truck just driving by ups oh, yeah. that dog will just be so distracted it will not be able to pee we all know kevin ups guy drives down the street whatever the dog is doing yeah they're immediately doing something else and that thing is called barking there'll be no ps oh. <laughs> all right well we should probably end the show on that note but before we do lara bricker do we have a cat of the week this week we do finally have a cat before i announce the cat I'm going to give you this week's runner-up because I've had so many really fun things lately. Um, This one is from Tim Christian, and his runner-up is Mm. the red scooter Pinot Grigio that he bought in honor of me and my pink scooter, and it's the cutest (laughs) one, and I'm going to have to go find it now. Is this Tim Christian from Australia? Yeah, and he found... Yeah, um, It looks like he's skiing on his Twitter thing. Yeah, he, so he came to our live Mary with podcast taping once, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, did yeah. he come to our Christmas party too? I think so. We yeah. have we have an Australian listener, New Zealand listener, and they've been showing up to all of our stuff, and we love them both. Oh my gosh! So Kian and Tim, Kyron, you said Kian. I think it's Kian. It's like Ryan, but with a K. It is because I have a friend right. who has. A You're son. right because you said Kian, and I thought it was. Oh, forget yeah. it. I'm sorry, Kian. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Laura. Well, anyway, so the actual cat of the week. Wait, so. The runner-up cat of the week was a scooter. No, it was a it was a, a new bottle of wine, and and the label on the wine is a woman driving a red scooter. Ah, oh. bottle of wine. So was the, the cat, cat of the week of was the a week runner-up. 
What's, <laughs> that's what's the runner-up, Toby. That's not the cat. That's the runner-up. <laughs> so the actual cat of the week oh, is called Damn It Walter. That's his real name. Nice. Damn It Walter mm. comes to us from Heather Howell Wilson. He loves ice cream and anything else he can eat that's not cat food, including spaghetti, green beans, and sauerkraut. So nice. I would say Ugh. damn it, Walter might be said a lot after he eats the sauerkraut, but that's just a guess. Damn it, nice. Walter. Yeah, that's my theory. <laughs> All right. Well, Laura Bricker, if folks want to send in their bottles of liquor to be nominated for Cat of the Week next week, of course, you could also nominate an animal like a cat or a dog or, I don't know, an emu or a lizard yeah. or, I don't know, a bottle of rum. How can they follow <laughs> you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And, of course, we should mention that most of our Cat of the Weeks come in through crimewritersona at gmail.com. Right, Kevin? Yes. And, Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say, Hey, Toby, I really enjoyed binging the whole series of Strange Arrivals. Thank you for making it. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And, Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and say, Hey. Hey, Kevin. Hey. hey, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Of course, you can go to our regular Facebook page. You will find the group there. Support this show and every show we make at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we display irreplaceable podcast memorabilia behind a completely unlocked door. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. You think someone turned to Kelsey Grammer and said, hello, Dr. Fraser? <laughs> is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.